BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. It's Friday, January 8th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free 30-day trial. To get started, all you have to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. We're going to start 2016 with a little bit of a different show. We're going to give you our preview of the science we think is going to be most prominently come to the forefront in 2016 with a look back at some of the themes that we saw emerge in 2015. And that's going to cover a lot of different domains and and spectrums, and probably we may not agree on all the results that are going to come out of it. Wait, you and me? (laughs) Yeah, you and me. (laughs) Or all of our listeners. (laughs) Probably all of the above. So hopefully we're going to uh, tease some different stories that you're going to hear on Inquiring Minds in the future with uh, interviews with experts in these fields. And I'm really thrilled for 2016 because it feels like there's some pretty big news that is going to be on the horizon this year. Yeah, and I think a lot of the news is going to be really positive, at least that's how it feels at the very beginning of the year. Um, Often at the end of the year, things are looking a little bit glum as we uh, look back at some of the difficult times, but I have a lot of optimism once January comes around, new beginnings, and also I actually think there's going to be some pretty amazing discoveries in science coming up in 2016 or very soon thereafter. Well, that's one of us that's optimistic. I have to say, I'm pretty down the middle. There's some things to be really pessimistic about that I think we're going to see come to the forefront. And I think probably the most interesting place is going to be the intersection of science and policy this year. Uh, With a U.S. presidential election, there's always a lot of rhetoric that comes out, both good, bad, and ugly. Uh, And I think at the same time, we're going to be exploring a lot of technologies that are well in use in science that have some pretty big ethical considerations. And what the discussion is going to look like in 2016, I don't know what it's going to exactly take the shape of, but I am really interested to see what the result is. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, we can jump right in. And I I do actually think that one of the topics that's going to come up uh, relatively often this year, as it will be for 
anyone uh, in the Western world, at least, is going to be the election in the U.S. Obviously, that's all going to be a big news item. Uh, but I think there's also going to be a bigger push towards understanding polling and understanding sort of the statistics behind election politics, uh, because we learned in the last presidential election that the polls can be terribly wrong <laughs> um, and, you know, make all kinds of predictions that don't hold true. And so I think this year, I hope anyway, that there's going to be a bigger emphasis on what can science help, how can science help us understand um, and, and, and predict about the elections? What do you think about that? Well, on the plus side, if you're right about your predictions, like Nate Silver, you turn that into a, a massive career and a huge independent site, courtesy of ESPN. So there is a benefit to getting things right. But I think you're, I think there's some techniques employed by the campaigns that we're going to see that were really sort of pioneered by the Obama campaign four years ago and eight years ago around micro-targeting of individuals for messaging. So not creating simple messaging for the same sort of category of folks, but really micro-messaging uh, in different uh, domains that I think is really interesting how they're using science and mostly statistics to really uh, parcel out what types of messages they're sending to different audiences. And I think we're going to see a furthering of that message. Already right now, we, we've talked a lot on the show about the polarization of different climates and how that is sort of um, measured in science. So I think we're going to uh, see even more of that in this campaign cycle. W what do you expect to see? Well, I actually think that now that we have a couple of these websites that are, are tracking what politicians are saying from the perspective of science and calling them out when they make, you know, they either cherry pick a study and it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't represent the consensus or, you know, they just get something horribly wrong. I think we're going to learn more and more uh, about that as it happens, uh, as opposed to kind of just allowing it to, to sort of proliferate in, in the news cycle as we have in previous elections. So I'm excited about that aspect of it. I was optimistic about that, especially when we did the story, the story on Sidecheck um, uh, middle of last year. And then there's been some incredibly ridiculous things said, both on a science side of things and just on like a normal fact basis in this campaign already. That feels like it's been going on for a couple years, by the way. The, this campaign needs to end. And I haven't seen that um, that sort of interjection in a cycle that I really was optimistic after talking to Kathleen Hall Jamison about really show up. But here's to hoping that makes a bigger impact in 2016. Well, maybe we just read different uh, news outlets because I feel like every um, you know every week there is another call out of something that some politician said that was just wrong, um, but. You know, maybe that's just because those are the ones that I read. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did spend a lot of time in 2015 talking about space. I think we probably covered more space stories in 2015 and space scientists from astronauts to uh, uh, to astrophysicists than we ever have before on this show. And I'm going to switch totally switch the conversation and look at something incredibly positive. Towards the end of last year, we saw some amazing feats of engineering show up courtesy of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos uh, with them re-landing -la uh, rockets that they had fired into suborbital trajectories so that they could reuse those rockets for future launches. Uh, and this is the year 
that they actually will have to reuse those rockets. And the whole point of this is to uh, save tens of, if not hundreds of millions of dollars by being able to reuse those rockets and just refill them with fuel as opposed to building a whole brand new rocket every time you launch something into space that could revolutionize how often uh, and the economics of the entire industry. So does that mean that, you know, now we can just, if we can just reuse the same vessel, um, that it'll be more, it'll become more like taking a flight somewhere, you know, more like the commercial airline industry? Is that how you're seeing it? In that direction. I think it's a little bit uh, much to say it'll be just like the 747 with like a half hour turnaround and you're you're on your way again. I think there's going to be a little bit more rigorous work in 2016 figuring out how often these things can be reused, what the life cycle is. We'll probably have some failures along the way that are going to illustrate that. But yeah, at the end of the day, yes, to a certain extent, we're talking about taking most of that rocket, the most expensive components, and just refilling it with uh, with a fuel. By the way, I was um, on a uh, on a Reddit science thread, and they were talking about uh, how much it costs to refuel one of these rockets, like the what the SpaceX rocket that re- that launched in space, and it was about four hundred thousand dollars to fill the tank. That's wow. an expensive fill up. But yeah, that's like a that's like a studio apartment <laughs> in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> but measured against millions of dollars to build the rocket, you know, that's a whole different um, situation. And now there's, uh, I I think I wasn't expecting to see that in 2015 coming in. We had known that they were going to attempt some of these things, especially the landing on the barge, but to see two successful. Uh, completions of that and to watch the video of how amazingly uh they landed that rocket with with such accuracy and with you know with little damage to it i was really blown away so i can't wait to see what's next yeah i think that's that's going to be super interesting speaking of shooting things uh into the atmosphere or space, you know, we, we did hear rumors of, uh, nor, or I guess North Korea claiming that they tested out a hydrogen bomb. And I know a lot of people were asking, what's the difference between a hydrogen bomb? Is it, is it an atom bomb or is it, can it can be considered a nuclear weapon and so forth? So, you know, I think that's probably a topic that we're also going to have to cover, uh, this, this year as more information gets out, um, with regards to that particular story and sort of understanding the implications. Although, Regardless, it's still kind of a frightening thing, um, although it seems like so far the U.S. has not been able to, um, you know, to, 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 to say that that claim is actually true. Yeah, there's uh, the best video if you're looking for a primer on detection methodologies when it comes to uh, nuclear explosions uh, was put on by Minute Physics, which is um, a YouTube uh, channel. Yeah, I love those guys. Uh, from Henry Reich. And it showed like the the different ways we need to uh, really detect this. So when it comes to underground, which is the situation here, uh, we have seismic detectors and then satellites in space that look for for uh, that essentially sniff out certain um, uh, components of it. But it's very hard to detect those elements to a certain extent. Everything right now points to it just being another hydrogen bomb explosion, uh, similar to what they did a few years ago in terms of. Uh, the seismic graph almost matched up uh, pretty exactly, even though the magnitude was a little bit bigger. 
uh, and they haven't found any sort of signs yet in terms of the publicly available scientific data uh, to point to that. That being said, combine this with the first story that we talked about, the U.S. presidential election, I think we're going to hear a lot about this story this year and ways that we need to beef up the detection method. Because if you watch Henry's video on Minute Physics, the number one detection method is to get inspectors in there so they can actually run um, more rigorous tests on site. Uh, because some of the the elements they're trying to detect are only available when you're that close when it comes to underground uh, uh, explosions. Right. So yeah, and I, so I think I think we are going to hear a lot more um, about that, and uh, we'll have to have a physicist on the show to to help us decipher some of the that information. I just want to take a moment to let our listeners know that this episode is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from on topics ranging from politics to science to classics. It lets you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. And Audible is offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free 30-day trial. So to get started, go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. And there are a couple of books on Audible that we've talked about on this show in 2015 that you might be interested in. So The Dorito Effect, The Surprising New Truth About Food and Flavor by Mark Schatzker is on there, uh, as well as the classic Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, um, The Acclaimed Guide to Stress, Stress Stress-Related Diseases and Coping by Robert Sapolsky, um, and also Friend and Foe, which was one of my uh, favorite books of 2015, When to Cooperate, When to Compete, and How to Succeed at Both by Adam Galinsky and Maurice Schweitzer. So once again, that's oddwellpodcast.com slash inquiring minds. So that's sort of the one of the sort of negative things that we'll be covering, um, you know, the, the potential for nuclear armaments by countries uh, that uh, have not been super friendly towards us and other countries. Um, but on a more positive note, January is always one of these months in which we have a new outlook on life. We make resolutions. We want to, you know, get fit or, you know, eat more, eat, eat healthier or, you know, sort of improve our lives in some ways. It feels as though once we get over that year end mark, uh, that this is an opportunity for us to make some changes for the better. So, um, I wanted to talk about a study that actually came across my desk this week uh, from the journal Social Psychological and Personality Science. And this is a study that came from the University of British Columbia. And it actually is a is a combination of six studies that include more than 4,600 participants. Uh, and uh, they have a f- relatively good Um, range of the types of participants that uh, were involved in this study uh, from a nationally representative sample of U.S. individuals, um, students at UBC, and even adult visitors at a science museum in Vancouver. And what they did is they asked these people whether they value time or money. That is, if you were given the choice between a job that paid more but required you to spend more time at the office would you choose that over the job that paid less but required less of your time? Um, Or would you buy a more expensive... What? (laughs) No, I would choose time. I see, you're valuing time. What what would you choose? (laughs) Yes. 
Time, for sure. And in fact, just over half of their respondents chose time. Uh, They would pick a a more expensive apartment with a shorter commute, for example, than a cheaper, bigger house with a longer one. That's what they say, anyway. I think a lot of the choices that we make uh, often don't show this particular value. But it seems that, you know, the the, the study participants were, were essentially evenly split. So it's slightly more than half of the people said that they would value time over money. Uh, and oftentimes when we hear about you know, very, very rich people about, you know, what, what, what they find to be the best part of being rich. Um, you know, a lot of people say it's having control over their time. So that makes a lot of sense. And it turns out that uh, we, in general, have a pretty stable preference. So when they um, ask these people time and time again about whether, you know, what, what they valued and in different, different contexts and different situations, people would value one or the other relatively in a relatively stable fashion. And it turns out that if you do value time over making money, uh, that seems to be associated with measures of greater happiness. <laughs> uh, so it seems like a lot of us are on the right track. Um, but one thing that sort of critics of the study point out is that even though gender or income didn't seem to affect whether people were more likely to value time or money, the study didn't include people who were living at the poverty line, um, who have to prioritize money in order to survive. Um, so, you know, in some sense, there is a time, there, there's a there's a, a sort of a large portion of the population that doesn't even have the choice between being able to value one or the other. Um, so, so that's worth saying. But it does seem to, to suggest that having more free time is more important for your general happiness, at least as you self-report it, uh, than having more money. It's funny, I definitely live above the poverty line, but at the same time, I don't feel like I have that choice to make. I feel like there are uh, pressures within my own sort of life, but moreover, like pressures from society that make that not a uh, a real choice that I have to make. Do you feel like that's a real choice, time versus money in this context? I think it's a choice that that I make all the time, but I often make the wrong choice, right? So, you know, I I get (laughs) trapped into being busy and, you know, just thinking I need to do a lot of stuff uh, and get a lot of stuff accomplished rather than, you know, and and sort of, so so I get get trapped in this kind of busyness. uh, And and so even though in my head, I will always say, yes, I value time over money, I often find myself taking on jobs or gigs that pay really well um, and not considering whether or not they're really worth my time. Do you know what I mean? Uh, absolutely. That's why I feel like it's a false choice. Yeah. I, and I, I think it's, it's one thing that we can, we can say we value one or the other, but so often our behavior you know, doesn't, doesn't fit in with the way that we claim that we value it. Right. So so that's one of my one of the things that I want to get better at in 2016 is, you know, really sort of making sure that I stay true to the idea of prioritizing time over money. And, you know, luckily, we live in an economy now where there are a lot of things that we can outsource. And especially in San Francisco, you know, you can uh, outsource a lot of the tasks that we have to do, um, you know, like cleaning the house or, or uh, you know, even getting, you know, doing your laundry. And that the idea is that we have to consider the not only the cost of, oh, you know, do I want to pay someone to do my laundry, but what does that give me in terms of the time that I get back? 
But again, these are these are pretty high class problems, you know, it's, it's that we are able to uh, live in such a way that we can afford to make those kinds of decisions. We've covered a lot of social psychology on the show in the past year. Are there any themes you see emerging for 2016 that are going to be really interesting uh, from your perspective? Well, I think we're probably going to talk a little bit about decision making since we have an election coming up. Um, and so I, I sort of see social psychology uh, taking over, you know, some of some of that aspect of it. But we also might find that we get burnt out <laughs> very soon, depending on how uh, elections are, the election is covered. Uh, so we, we might want to go in a completely different direction. Um, but one uh, interview that I'm really looking forward to that we're actually recording next week is with a neuroscientist who has been studying why we snap. So this kind of rage response. Um, and it's more than, you know, just talking about um, sort of people who are mentally ill, who do horrible things, uh, but rather what is it in all of us that uh, sort of makes us snap. So I'm, I'm really excited about that particular interview. But I think in general, yeah, we'll probably in terms of our social psychology and, and um, emphasis, we'll, we'll be looking at decision making. I wonder if we're going to hear the R word much more this year in psychology, the reproducibility word, which was a big theme, I thought, that came out of last year with that landmark sort of review study of reproducibility in, in a lot of different domains. Uh, and I sort of hope not, because it feels like a, still too much of an insider issue in science to really evaluate how much these uh, studies that we conduct uh, can be reproduced by different labs, and it's more nuanced than that. But I think it's a, one of those fascinating areas of discussion that seems to be coming to the forefront more and more. I actually hope we evolve a little bit beyond just sheer reproducibility and talk about sort of how we're going to be consuming science and how science is going to be, um, you know, how, how we're going to be funding it, how we're going to be, you know, making sure that it trickles down. Because, you know, I think we're, we're getting to a point where it's just impossible to know the literature, uh, because there's just so many papers being published all the time. And, you know, so you just have this huge quantity of information. And it's, it's really hard to figure out um, where the quality is. So, so I hope we can sort of turn this reproducibility crisis into uh, a set of solutions of, of maybe even rethinking uh, how we consume and publish scientific data. That feels a little aggressive for 2016. But I'm, I'm with you on that. <laughs> Well, maybe, maybe, maybe it's a little aggressive, but uh, you know, it's January. I'm optimistic, um, but I also am really optimistic about some of the uh, discoveries I think that we're going to be making in the medical field. So um, you might have come across some stories of President Jimmy Carter, who was undergoing treatment for advanced melanoma. Uh, so advanced melanoma is stage four skin cancer. So it's skin skin cancer that is spread beyond the skin and into other organs, and in general, once it metastasizes, it can be very hard to treat and ultimately fatal. And for many patients, before the advent of these new therapies, uh, like the one that President Carter is on, life expectancy with metastatic melanoma diagnosis was only about six to 10 months. So pretty fast. Um, but one of the ways in which it's now treated represents a really encouraging direction in cancer research in general. So traditionally, treatments like chemotherapy and radiation focused on killing tumor cells. And of course, they have severe side effects because other cells, healthy ones that we need to survive, um, can be caught up in collateral damage. 
So, you know, one of the reasons why cancer is so nefarious, of course, is that it, it hides from our immune system, right? So it, it has ways to trick our immune system into thinking that uh, it's just, you know, regular healthy cells as opposed to something that's harming us. Um, so because these cells look like the rest of our cells and they start out that way too, uh, that's one of the reasons why the immune system is not very good at fighting off tumor cells. Well, actually, it's pretty good at fighting off tumor cells uh, for the most part, but not when you actually get your cancer digging in. Anyway, those details. So instead of targeting tumor cells directly, um, some cancer researchers are actually looking at a whole new way of treating cancer. So instead of targeting the tumor, they want to target essentially the immune system and let the immune system take care of business. So these are called immunotherapies or immuno-oncology. So we talked about one such uh, uh, direction a, a couple of shows ago when we, we talked about taking T cells from either a donor or an individual um, and sort of making them, marking them so that they can target particular uh, tumor cells. You might remember that uh, story. But one strategy that cancer cells have of hiding from the immune system is to overexpress over or produce more of a particular protein called PD-1. That stands for programmed cell death one. Um, but PD-1 acts as an immune system checkpoint. So if there's a lot of it around, then the immune system is downregulated. It's sort of turned down, if you will. So the cancer cells go under the radar. Um, now, the drug that President Carter is on is a PD-1 inhibitor. That is, it counteracts the overexpression or overproduction of PD-1 by the cancer cells and therefore allows the immune system to do its job. Um, and so the immune system is actually the most effective, selective, and long-lasting way we have of fighting illness. Um, it's, it's in some ways a much better solution to let the immune system take care of the problem than for us to try to take care of the problem and get around the immune system. Uh, so the exciting thing about these uh, drugs that act as uh, PD-1 inhibitors is that we might almost be on a road to a cure for a lot of these cancers because if we can get the immune system to recognize them and target them and then create memory T cells that remember, you know, the, the way that these cancerous cells looked or behave, uh, then that can keep them from getting out of hand for a long time, if not an entire lifespan. Um, so, you know, I think in the next year or so, we're going to hear much more about some of the clinical trials. Uh, the, the clinical trial data is, is going to come out in a number of meetings looking at how successful these therapies are. And, um, you know, I think I think it I'm, I'm encouraged by it. I think it's 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 really a novel way of looking at cancer treatment. I'm a little bit surprised to hear you say that, because if we're to look at what is the trend in uh, biology and uh, overall just sort of like therapeutics, the word that comes to mind is CRISPR. Like that's all we hear yeah. about is gene therapy and gene editing right now. So you're seeing a whole different direction that you you think is going to emerge for 2016 as a bigger story. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think CRISPR is going to continue to be a big story. Um, but I also think that we're going to we're going to see a lot of this immuno oncology that is going to just, you know, look at different avenues towards um, solving, you know, similar problems. Well, I, I agree with you. I am very optimistic about uh, some of those techniques and, and that um, uh, and that use because it is already being proven useful in humans, as you alluded to with, with President Carter. 
Uh, so I think it's on the cusp in a way a lot of the technologies we talk about uh, aren't. That being said, I think the dominant biology story of 2016 is still going to be CRISPR. Um, which, because of there is so much hype around it and there's so much potential and the growth in the area has been so astronomical. Uh, for our listeners that you know haven't heard me sort of rave about CRISPR and probably drool over it over the past year, it's the essentially it's the technology that allows us to cut and paste different elements of, of DNA using uh, a really particular uh, pathway. And that has been has revolutionized um, certain biological techniques, but opened up all sorts of ethical and societal concerns about how technology can be used, especially in the context of editing human genetics. Uh, and uh, the end of uh, of 2015 saw the gene human gene editing summit come to the foray, where a group of scientists issued their sort of ethical guidelines on the on the use of this. And I think those ethical guidelines were completely predictable what they said like we shouldn't experiment on on human cell lines etc cetera, etc cetera. but i think we're going to see a number of groups particularly uh, groups in international markets just continue to push forward but i think the underlying story is we're going to see crispr make its way into ag you know we had a conversation uh with a a, um, a researcher at monsanto in 2015 uh, and it seemed like the the applications of using that gene edited technology is going to uh, bolster that business in, in a pretty significant way in the short term in a way that it won't in humans. And then second, I think there's a big patent war coming. Now there's so much hype and so much movement, there's going to be a fight about who makes all the money off of it. Uh, what do you see as the as the future of the, of the discussion on CRISPR in 2016? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I... I... I, I don't know if it's too soon, but I suspect we're going to get close to hearing more about uh, the sort of de-extinction work. Uh, maybe we're not quite there yet, but, you know, making some more strides in that. I feel like that's going to be a hot, uh, hot topic. And and then, of course, you know, how we can start to use CRISPR, um, you know, and in, in, in terms of uh, the medical applications, I think is also, you know, there's going to be a lot of obviously wor- a lot of work in that domain, too. So, you know, I, I totally agree with you. Um, I think that's going to be uh, uh, continue to be a, a big story in biology. But I also think that we're going to hear more and more about uh, artificial biology, if you will. In some ways, you can argue that uh, CRISPR is artificial, but even more artificial than that. Um, I'm going to be following some of the stories on artificial intelligence, as I always do. Um, And for those of you that are in the Bay Area, on February 29th, I'm going to be interviewing Ayanna Howard on the future of robotics for the series City Arts and Lectures, Conversations in Science um, at the Norris Theater, uh, which is always always a, a fun uh, event, those City Arts and Lectures conversations. And I think, uh, Kishore, you have one too. Yeah, I'm interviewing Jane McGonigal about the uh, the way that games uh, can be used to actually uh, improve uh, the human condition in real life. Yeah, so I think that um, what I'm most excited about talking to Ian about is you know, where are we in terms of robotics and how, you know, artificial intelligence, how smart are our robots? And, you know, she's gotten a lot of flack too, because a lot of, uh, you know, major thinkers in technology have, you know, stated publicly that they fear the revolution in robotics um, and uh, that we need to think about that more carefully from an ethical perspective. So it'll be interesting to see, um, to hear her thoughts on, 
where we are right now and what's what's going to what's the discovery just around the bend that's going to change the way that we interact with robots i welcome our, our robot overlords i don't know about you um i i see um the breakthrough in robotics being widespread in a lot of different ways the one that I'm most interested in isn't isn't robotics. It's really the the virtual reality and how that is interacting with robotics. Like um, we've seen uh, uses of virtual reality when it comes to drones, uh, which is obviously uh, when it comes to autonomous drones will be really interesting. And their imaging is of of virtual spaces. We've seen um, we had a, a pretty extensive discussion about uh, VR this past year. Uh, and we know that the first consumer VR products are going to be hitting the market this year. And I think the interaction between humans and robotic interfaces is going uh, to be a really interesting place for us to look at across a lot of domains, both the technology and then the psychology of being of interacting in those ways. Uh, and I think that's going to be a massive story in 2016. Yeah, I mean, I think that to me that obviously the psychology is really interesting. And in that same vein, apparently the American Association of Pediatrics is going to be uh, putting out new guidelines for media use and screen time in infants, toddlers and children. And I'll be curious to hear what they have to say, uh, because, you know, up until now, they basically said no screen time for uh, kids under two. And a lot of people agree with that. And there's been a lot of sort of backlash against the idea of, you know, giving screens to young children. But there hasn't been a lot of data showing that there really is an effect. People just say, oh, look, their young minds are, are developing. And, you know, they, they sort of make a lot of uh, predictions of how screen time might affect toddlers and, and what, uh, in, you know, how that relates to ADHD, um, you know, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder and so forth. Um, but I think that there's going to be a number of studies that are going to be published uh, in the next year or so, or just, or have, you know, have already been uh, peer reviewed are going to come out that are going to give us some real data as to whether or not uh, these screens, screen use early on can have an influence um, and so forth. So, you know, a lot of people think, take it for granted, um, but I think the jury is still out. And there are a lot of prominent child development researchers like Alison Gopnik, for example, uh, who aren't so afraid of screens and who argue that there is some interactive component uh, to certain screen time, um, you know, that, that, maybe is not quite as harmful as we think it is. So so I'm definitely curious to hear how that conversation is going to unfold and what the association is going to be recommending. I think those screen time uh, issues, really the interesting place for them is, I think they're going to have ramifications even as we talk about adolescents uh, and adults too, in terms of how some of the findings in young kids really uh, inform how we approach uh, uh, those interfaces in the future. We can't talk about... 2016 without mentioning climate change, especially on the heels of the groundbreaking agreement that uh, occurred towards the tail end of 2015, something I really did not uh, see coming, that there would be any sort of agreement on climate change. Um, that being said, uh, the agreement that's in place was, was non-binding and, and didn't go far enough from a lot of scientists' perspective. I think 2016, especially the first half of the year, we're really going to be talking about climate change in the context of El Nino. Both of us uh, uh, live on the West Coast of the United States in San Francisco, and we're being battered by El Nino storms right now. Uh, but El Nino is having a pretty massive effect on the Pacific overall. This 
sort of sort of warming water that that sort of emerged much farther north than it normally does. Um, the pattern in in terms of how that's affecting uh, all sorts of marine life, from corals to uh, to marine mammals, is pretty extensive, and it might be a harbinger of what we see to come when it comes to climate change and the oceans. Uh, do you see any major climate change stories coming down the pipe for 2016 that you find are are going to uh, dominate headlines? I mean, I think we're going to have to talk about El Nino a lot. And maybe that's just because we are in California and we're already experiencing um, um, it. But, you know, I, I think that there's there are going to be disasters, unfortunately, that um, that we're going to need to talk about and um, try to understand. I also worry about uh, one of the other sort of lesser talked about stories of climate change that might come to the forefront, uh, which is this warning of uh, impending famine in countries like Ethiopia. Um, so you might remember in the 80s, there was a terrible famine in which, you know, hundreds of thousands of people died. And, um, you know, we sort of on, in the Western world learned about it, or at least it became common knowledge too late. Uh, now people are saying that same kind of famine is around the corner, but it's preventable if we act now. Um, and yet it's not making the headlines. And so, you know, I, I think that that's going to have to be a, a big story in the next year, even though that's not really how our, our news cycle necessarily works. But um, I would hope that those people um, get the help that they need and that we can prevent uh, that kind of a disaster again. I definitely think we're going to have lots of experts talking about climate change this year. Uh, in ways that we didn't in 2015, really talking about these tangible issues, whether it's um, floods from El Nino, famine in Africa, um, or even uh, possible uh, migratory effects of, of different animals. I think you can look forward to seeing that a lot more this year. Yep. Those are just a few of the issues we're going to cover over the next uh, 50 some odd weeks with you this year on Inquiring Minds. Uh, look for a number of interviews across the spectrum. But if you're looking for a topic that you didn't hear mentioned here in our preview episode, please email us and tell us what you think should be covered as important stories for 2016. And we'll do our best to make sure you have an expert to listen to in depth uh, so you can understand the nuance behind the issue. We're definitely looking forward to interacting with more and more of you this year, too. Uh, we hope to have uh, a couple more live shows coming up and um, other ways of, of interacting with our listeners. So thank you for joining us for 2015. And we look forward to speaking with you and hearing from you um, in 2016. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, and Sean Johnson. And once again, this episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free 30-day trial. So to get started, all you have to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, things that you want us to cover or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.